going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we've been working our way through this book of 1 Peter in this series called On the Ground, um, looking at how do we live out our faith on the ground here in the world, here in the culture, uh, in a way that uh, honors the Lord and submits to Him and puts Him first, and how do we do that in dependence and in, and in love for Him and all these great things. And so um, today we want to press into that even more, talking about the humble worshiper, and what a great uh, time of Worship we just had to get us ready for that, get our hearts primed for God's word this morning. So um, I want to start with a picture for you. Go ahead and put that picture up there, that first picture. Does anybody recognize this picture? I know some of you all probably do. Um, so that is the, uh, the cornerstone or the memorial stone at the corner of our new building, and it marks the date that it was built, and it has information there about, you know, the church when it first was built and all those great things. And a lot of times when you hear the word cornerstone, this is the picture most people get, right, is that picture of that memorial stone. That's what we see most of the time in buildings today. But in reality, an original cornerstone was more like this, right? It was actually this big stone that was at the corner of the, the building. It was always laid first, and all the other stones were then laid on it or in conjunction with it, in alignment with it. it. It was the first stone that was laid. It was what set the corner, set the foundation for the building. It would um, set up the orientation of the building. It would do all these things. And that's, that's the idea of a cornerstone that Peter is talking about here in our passage today. Peter's going to be talking about the cornerstone, that foundational primary first stone of the church. And the cornerstone of the church, we know, is Jesus Christ. Right? And so um, as, he, as he does this, his point is to help us orient ourselves, orient our lives, orient our worship, orient our mission all around him, all around Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the church. So with that in mind, here's kind of the big idea that I want us to think on today as we look through these verses together, that as long as harvest exists, we will worship Jesus. I hope I didn't even have to say that this morning to you. I hope you already knew that, but we need to reaffirm that. We need to make sure that we are continually uh, leaning into that and believing that, that we are here for the sole purpose of worshiping the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of his church. And so Peter's going to help us do that again this morning in chapter 2, verse 4, is where I want to start. So let's go ahead and read the scripture together. I'm going to read all of it this morning, and then we'll go back and and take it apart. Uh, throughout the the sermon. So verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, who believe, whoever believes in him uh, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe and for those who do not believe. The stone, has been, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse number nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First thing that I want you to show, I want to show you here from Peter's text is this, that Jesus is the foundation of our worship. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our worship as Christians, as the church. This very first phrase here in verse 4, when he says, as you come to him, that come to him phrase there is hearkening back to a common phrase we find in the Old Testament where it says um, to come to him specifically in the act of worship, right? To come to him and to remain in his presence on a regular basis as, a, as living a life of worship, before the Lord. And so what Peter says here, as you come to him, he's already inviting them, like, listen, this is about worship, right? Come, come and worship him who he describes here as a living stone rejected by men. Now, this is clearly a reference to Christ for a couple different reasons, and it's specifically a reference to Christ both in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. And I'll explain that in just a second. But the reason Peter uses this, this phrase here is because Jesus already used it of himself earlier on in the Gospels, right? In uh, Mark 12, 10 through 11, in Matthew 21, 42 through 44, and in Luke 20, 17 through 18, Jesus takes this phrase of being a living stone rejected by men, and he, it's an Old Testament prophecy is what it is, and he applies it to himself in these scriptures as he's teaching his disciples. So Jesus already described himself as the living stone that was rejected. Peter then also describes Jesus as this after his crucifixion and resurrection in Acts 4.11. So we already see a history of this phrase being used, and now Peter writes it into his letter here in chapter 2. And the reason that they're using this phrase, this prophecy, the way that it was fulfilled in Christ, was first of all, he was rejected, the rejected stone, because he was rejected by the Jewish leaders, Right? They did not believe that he was the Messiah. In fact, that's the reason that they sent him off to be crucified is because they believed he was blaspheming God by claiming to be the Messiah when he wasn't. Right? And so they rejected his, um, his lordship. They rejected him as the Messiah. And yet it says that he was the stone rejected by men but chosen and precious to God. And God raised him from the dead and gave him resurrected life as the living stone, right? After he's been rejected by men because he was chosen and precious. He was God's own son that he sent into the world, right? To, to die for sin, to redeem sinners, to save us. So we can have a relationship with God again. This was God's plan, and yet men didn't see it. And so they rejected him, the living stone. Peter goes on then and go to verse 6 now. We're going to come back to verse 5 in just a minute. But go to verse 6 and it says that he, he goes on in verses 6 through 8 then to back up this claim that Jesus is the living stone rejected by men with all these Old Testament scriptures. That's why they kind of call them out in your Bible, right? They're kind of like in the separate little sections. These are all Old Testament scriptures, Old Testament prophecies that Peter's using to apply and prove that Jesus is indeed the living stone. Here he even calls him a cornerstone, Right? Again, meaning that he was the first stone. He was the first living stone. He was the first one to be raised back to life. But he's not going to be the last. Amen? 
right? All those who believe in Jesus get that same resurrection life, that same resurrection power flowing through us, through the Holy Spirit. And one day we have that same promise that we will be resurrected to life just like Christ was the first living stone, the cornerstone, if we have faith in him. And so he's the foundation for our worship because he was the first. He was the, he was the, the, the primary um, stone to be laid for our faith then to be built upon. And we know here that the prophecy is, when, he talks, when the prophecy talks about a cornerstone being laid, that it's not talking about an actual stone. It's talking about a person because in the same verse, notice it calls the cornerstone a hymn. Right? And this isn't just like, him giving a nice little name or personal pet name to the cornerstone. Like he's talking about this cornerstone represents metaphorically a person, a man that was going to come, the Messiah, as they interpreted it, um, and that this was going to ultimately be fulfilled in. As the cornerstone, as the Messiah, he is now central, he is foundational to all of our worship. And Peter understands this because then he goes on to call out two groups. He says, There's, are, there are those who believe, and there are those who do not believe. Do you see that there, right after the cornerstone verse, right? And now he's going to address these two groups, because what he knows, and what I hope that you have come to understand, I know we've talked about it here at Harvest before, is that when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutral. There's no middle ground. You either believe and you are for Jesus, or you do not believe and you are against Jesus. There is no middle. And so Peter's saying, like, listen, you're in one of these two groups, and here's how you know. He says, to not believe is to reject him, to stumble over him, the cornerstone, as an offense, he says. You see, people who don't believe in Jesus, who think that, that he really isn't God or wasn't the Messiah or all that kind of stuff, they get offended by Christ because the Bible tells them and God tells them that if you want to really worship, you have to worship me. You have to worship God. You have to worship Jesus. That's the only place adequate for your worship. But non-believers, they don't want to worship Jesus. They want to worship something else. They want to worship themselves. They want to worship their job. They want to worship their family. They want to worship money. They, they have something else that they want to worship. And so when someone tells them that the only way you get to heaven, the only way you can have life, the only proper place for your worship is Jesus that becomes a stumbling for them on the path to where they want to be rather than the place where God's calling them to be. He says that they stumble because they disobey. And when he says disobey there, he doesn't just mean like disobey the law, like just disobey like, you know, God's rules. He's talking about the ultimate disobedience, that they disobey in the fact that they don't believe. You understand that when you reject Jesus, when you refuse to believe in Jesus, that in and of itself is sin. That in and of itself is a disobedience because you are saying to God that he's not God. And that's the ultimate disobedience that Peter is talking about here. They stumble because they disobey as they were destined to do. Now, that phrase right there, destined to do, is kind of a controversial phrase. I'm just going to be real honest with you this morning, all right? So let me see if I can unpack this for you to make sense. When he says this, that they stumble as they were destined to do, he's not saying that God destined them to sin. Okay, God doesn't do that. We have other scriptures like in James that tell us that God tempts no one, that God is not the one who leads us to sin. God does not destine anyone to commit sin or evil. Um, what he did destine was he destined Jesus 
to come die for sin on our behalf. He did destine some of us to choose to believe in him by his grace. And he called us to himself. That's why earlier in the letter, Peter calls us chosen, right? That God chose us to believe and give us the grace to believe in Jesus Christ. But by destining Jesus to come and die for sin and to give that opportunity to be saved, then those who reject Jesus out of their own natural evil heart are destining themselves to hell and to wrath and to ultimate death. God didn't do that. They did that because they disobeyed and they refused to believe when Jesus said, come to me and I will give you grace. And so God set this up here for there to be an opportunity, but it's only one side or the other. There's no neutral. The Puritans have this great saying that they used to use that I think portrays this idea perfectly. They said, the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And in that analogy, Jesus is the sun, right? And when you come face to face with the sun, depending on the, 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 the condition of your heart, it's either going to melt away the cold, dark snow of your heart and you're going to receive Jesus, or the sun's going to beat down on a heart that's already hard and just make it harder, and you're going to reject Jesus. But it's one or the other. No middle ground. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection force you to go one way or the other. You either have to believe or not believe. And the reason that's true is because we are all worshipers. God created every one of us with hearts that have to worship something. They just have to. They have no other choice. Like There's just a longing inside of us that has to worship something. The question is, what are you going to worship? And what Peter's pointing out in this passage is that what you worship depends on what is your foundation. Let me see if I can illustrate. Let's say, for example, the foundation of your life is money. That's the most important thing to you. If that's true, then you're going to worship material things, right? Because that's what makes you feel like you have things. Or you're going to worship um, your portfolio and how much you can amass and how much you can earn. Or you're going to worship your work because the more hours I put in, the more money I get. If money is the foundation of my life, then it's going to lead to acts of worship that fulfill that foundation. Or maybe... Yours is comfort, right? If comfort is the foundation of my life, then I'm going to worship substances because they make me feel good. I'm going to worship safety, and everyone's always got to be protected. Everything's got to be, you know, just completely safe all the time. Otherwise, it's going to rock my comfort level. Or I'm going to worship sex because, again, it makes me feel good because it fills that void in me because I want to feel comfort. If that's your foundation, then that's what you're going to worship. Or maybe your foundation is approval, right? And so your worship comes out by always wanting to please people, right? I always want to make sure that everybody's good, everybody likes me, nobody's mad, right? We're, we're all on the same page, so I'm going to be a people, or maybe it comes out in your appearance, 
right? Because you want the approval of others, and so you always want to look a certain way and have everything just right, so everybody thinks of you and approves of what you look like. Or you just want peace, like no conflict, like that's your measurement for life, right? Like just no conflict. I just want to be at peace with people and have the approval all the time. Or maybe your foundation is success. And so worship means winning at all costs. It means climbing that corporate ladder and building that career and making sure that you have that status and that your name means something. And that's where your worship flows. It's all about your foundation. What is foundational to your life? But all those things that I just named, all of those fall short. They're all empty because they're all temporal because they all are going to come to an end when this world passes away. And you're going to find that you are worshiping the wrong things. But if we come to Jesus, if Jesus is our cornerstone, if Jesus is the foundation of our life, then our worship will flourish as it was designed to be, worshiping a God who can fulfill us in every way and give us an eternity with him. But as long as we're worshiping and pursuing these other things, we're going to stumble over Jesus. And we're going to fall into desperation and despair and ultimately even death. And so the real question here as we look at this first part is, you need to understand your worship hinges on Jesus. It all hinges on him, either one way or the other. Will you come to him and worship him, or will you stumble over him as you seek to worship other things? It's got to be one or the other. So Jesus is the foundation of our worship. But there's a second thing. Look back at verse 5 again. Now Peter's going to talk about how that relates to us, right? Um, so the second point is this. We are the house of God's worship. If Jesus is the foundation, we are the house being built on that foundation for the worship of God. Look in verse 5. It says that we also are living stones. All right, so Jesus was the first living stone. He's the cornerstone, but we also are living stones like him. If you put your faith in Jesus, you have been given new life in Christ, and that resurrection power now lives in you, and you also are a living stone. And it says here these living stones are being built up. But notice the passive voice there, right? They're being built up not by us, not by your pastor, not by church leaders. They're being built up by God, the master builder, right? He's the one who builds his people into the church, into the body of Christ. In fact, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said it to himself, he said, I tell you, you are Peter, he's talking to Peter here, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gate to hell will not prevail against it. Jesus told us straight up, like, listen, I'm the one building the church. It's me, right? I'm the builder. You're the bricks, okay? You're the ones that are being built up as living stones. Now, God has always been the one building his church from the time of Christ all the way to the time until now. But what I think is really interesting here is, is, is Peter's emphasis. Right? Peter's emphasis here is not on himself 
not on any of the other apostles, not on the pastors, not on the elders or the church leaders. His emphasis is on God and on Christ and on the church as a whole. Listen, there are some today who like to claim that Peter was like the head of the church. He was the first guy. He was the top of the food chain in the early church and the whole thing. Listen, Peter had an instrumental role in the early church for sure. But Peter knew he wasn't the foundation. Right? Even though Christ renamed him Peter, which means rock, right? Petros in the Greek. Even though he was an apostle, even though he was the first one to give a gospel sermon and thousands of people respond and get saved, even though he was one of the major leaders in the early church, right here, if he wanted to have an opportunity to exalt himself and point to himself and say, look at me, I'm the one, I'm awesome, follow me, he could have done it right here. But he didn't. He said, no, 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 not me. Jesus is the foundation. God is the builder, and you are the stones that get to be a part of this beautiful church, this beautiful thing that God is building. Yes, God has assigned leaders. God has assigned elders and pastors to lead his church. But listen, folks, not for the exaltation of themselves and not at the exclusion of his people. This is so important. We have to walk this fine line of tension as believers. Listen, we do not exalt church leaders as foremost. That is Christ's position. Yes, we honor them. Yes, we follow them. But we do not exalt them. We exalt Christ. But also, we don't exclude the church. We don't exclude the people. Listen, your pastors and your staff and your leaders are not the only ones who are supposed to be doing the mission of God's church. The living stones are the ones being built up to fulfill the mission. All together, collectively, leaders and members, all in the same structure for the same purpose of worshiping our great God and Savior. God has always been building his church. And we are his most basic building materials. Each and every one of us who believes in Christ. That's you. No matter what you think about your skills or abilities or your time or talents or whatever, like if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a living stone in the house of God and you are being built up for a purpose. And you need to be on that if you're not already. He keeps going. He says that they're being built together as a spiritual house. Now again, the word he uses for house there is a, is a particular word for house, which is oftentimes used again in the Old Testament to describe not just any house, but the house of God. The temple that was built in Jerusalem. God's house where his presence came down, where he was worshipped. Right? And so a couple of things that I notice here about this idea of building together this house. First of all, it's an idea of community. Notice that the bricks that are being built up, they're not just kind of scattered all over the yard, wherever, right? Like they're not piled up in a heap over here. The bricks aren't going off building their own little individual houses. No, all the bricks, all the living stones are being brought together and built as one house for the Lord. There's unity in that. 
There's community in that, right? Listen, the Christian experience was never designed to be a solo sport. You cannot do it alone. Your purpose is to be built together with other believers. That's why Sunday morning is so important. That's why we gather every week and put in hours and hours of work to get to this place where we can worship together as the community, the people of God. This is why small groups are so important that you are walking throughout the week with other believers being built together to go out and serve the Lord and to follow him and to worship him with your life. This is why Harvest Kids and students, all of that, it's all about building together. Right? Being a community before the Lord. That's why serving is so important. Right? That you're serving the Lord in your life, in the church, that you are giving yourself to be built up. Your living stone is not being wasted. There's community in this building, but there's also unity in this building because there's this common experience that we share. Right? We have a common presence in the Lord. We have a common cornerstone in Jesus Christ. We have a common mission to fulfill and a purpose to be united in. But if we're being honest, too often the modern day church is a picture of division and individuality rather than unity and community. Too often as Christians engage in the body of Christ based on our preferences, based on our needs, based on our demands or our assessments of what is better or best. And when it doesn't meet what we think it should look like or the way we want it to be, we reach up and we take our stone out of the building and we try to walk away. And we leave these giant gaping holes in the spiritual house of God because we're over here doing our own thing. The master builder is like, you're missing the whole point. We don't come to this to worship because it's about us. We come to here because the worship is about Jesus, the cornerstone. And so we're being built together in unity to do that before the Lord. So we have this community in this, in this spiritual house. We have the unity and we have purpose. He says you're being built together as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Man, he just keeps like piling on the Old Testament imagery, right? So now he's bringing up this priesthood idea. So in the Old Testament, the priests were the only ones who were allowed to go into the inner parts of the temple. They were the only ones who were holy enough, they had been cleansed, that they could go into God's presence and they could offer sacrifices to the Lord. They could offer worship to the Lord on behalf of the people. And so if you were Jewish and you wanted to worship the Lord, if you, wanted, you had to give it to the priest and they had to go do it for you. You couldn't do it yourself. But all that changed with Jesus. When Jesus came, he now becomes our great high priest, Hebrews tells us, and he right now is mediating between us and God. And we no longer have to go through a, another human to worship. We just get to go through the, our priest, Jesus Christ. And we get to go directly to God with our worship. And because of that, he now brings us into his priesthood. right? And he makes us here a holy priesthood to offer these spiritual sacrifices to worship him. 
We're all part of this house of worship. And it's for this purpose that he builds us up together to glorify him, to worship him as holy priests. And to expand on this language, now jump down to verse 9, where Peter continues on with this idea of who we are, this identity language. He says, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, my own possession, God says. All of those titles, all that language, he first used it not for the church. He first used it for Israel. This is what he told the Israelites. You are my chosen race. You're my royal priesthood. You're my holy nation. You're the ones that I've chosen to love and to to be a a, a light in the world. But now as Christ has come and he's instituted the new people of God in the church, he now calls us these same things. That we're chosen together for salvation. That we are royal priesthood to mirror, to mirror the glory of God, the glory of the King to all those that are around us. We're a holy nation set apart to worship Him and to worship Him alone. But again, notice the emphasis here. We're built together as God's own house of worship, but the emphasis is on the people, not a place. For years with the Jewish people, the emphasis had been on the place. It had been on the temple. The emphasis is no longer on a place. Now the emphasis is on a people. The church and their call to worship is never about a building. It's always about the collective people of God glorifying him in all that they do. And that's what Peter's pressing down here. And he says, you've been called together as this great people to proclaim the excellencies of him. When I wrote that in my notes this week, Microsoft Word was like, that's not a word. I'm like, yes, it is. We're definitely sticking with that word. The excellencies of Christ. Our whole purpose is to worship him. That's why we're built together. Because he he has called us from darkness to light. And as we worship the one who has saved us from darkness and called us into his marvelous light, we also get to be a witness to all those around us that they can be saved from darkness too and that the light is for them. Come and worship Jesus with us. It's about worship and it's about witness. You know, we are extremely blessed as a four-year-old church plant that God has already gifted us a permanent building place to meet virtually debt-free. Like, that is off the charts, guys. Like, I know churches that go seven, ten years as a church plant, but they ever get a permanent place. The fact that he has, it's it's a miraculous provision. But here's the thing. As great as it is, it is crucial that as we move into this new building, that we don't lose sight of Peter's teaching here. The building doesn't make us a church. It simply gives our church a place to gather. The church is a people, not a place. The church is an organism, 
not an organization. The church is meant to be a movement, not a monument. It's about the people of God. And so the last thing that we need to do is become complacent or comfortable when set up and tear down is over. Okay? This means we have more energies to put towards other good stuff for the Lord. We're still on mission. We are still worshiping and witnessing for him. We are still a church with or without a building. But praise the Lord that he gave us a building. Amen? (laughs) But we're the church. That's what Peter's saying. We are built together to glorify him through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our identity is built on this reality. That is our mission. We, we've been saying it for over four years now. We are a vertical church. This is our purpose. It's all about worshiping and glorifying God. The four pillars, unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration, unafraid witness, unceasing prayer, all of that is about worshiping and witnessing for the God who has called us to be his chosen people. That's why we're here. That's our identity. That is harvest. And according to Peter, that is a New Testament church. So Jesus is the foundation of our worship. We are called together to be the people of God as we worship him. We're built together as his house of worship. And then number three, his mercy grants us the honor to worship. His mercy grants us, listen, grants us the honor to worship him. Peter says here in verse 10, he says that first of all, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Primarily, again, this letter is written primarily to Gentile believers. So you have to kind of understand the context for them, right? Like for the Gentiles, forever, they'd always been on the outside, right? They weren't Jews, so they couldn't be a part of God's people. They couldn't be a part of the work. They were outside of the people of God. But now, through Jesus Christ, if they put faith in Jesus, now they can be part of, they can be brought in, and they can be God's people. And the same applies for all of us. When we were born into this life, we were not a people. We were sinners. We were lost in rebellion and evil, and we were headed for hell. We were not God's people. But by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross to die for our sins, we get to become God's people, his own family. He adopts us in by his grace and his mercy, and he makes us a part of him and his his house. In the church, he has given us a place to belong to him and to become like him because we are now God's people. It's a place of honor. He says this is all because first you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Anyone happy this morning that you received some mercy from Jesus? Right? Right? Mercy is defined as not giving me what I deserve. Listen, all of us, we didn't deserve mercy. We deserved wrath and hell and punishment. That's what we deserve. But God loved us enough while we were yet sinners. He loved us enough to give us mercy instead, to wash away our guilt and to make us clean so that we can come and be his people and worship him as we were designed to do. Mercy sent a cornerstone ahead of us. Mercy made us living stones and is building us together as the people of God. Sometimes I look at the church and I'm like, really God, this was your best plan? This was your best plan for the whole like save the world thing? Because we're kind of messed up. But this was God's plan. He wants to build us together to be his presence on the earth, to let him come down and be worshiped and dwell with us. That's mercy. He uses people like us to worship and witness for him. Mercy opens the door for us to have the honor of worshiping the living God. And that forever changes every aspect of our lives. If you're here today and you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, if you've not yet been forgiven for your sins and been brought into the family of God, then I, I hope you do that today. That just right now in your own heart, and your own mind, just pray and just say, God, I'm a sinner. I am messed up and I need you to save me. I believe in Jesus. Forgive my sins. Make me one of your own. And in a moment, you can be one of God's people. Mercy can flood your life. But for those of us who have already had that, Peter's final remark here in verse 10 is simply this. Never stop worshiping Jesus. Period. Exclamation point. Never stop worshiping Jesus. That is the mission. That is the role. That is the honor that we have in Christ. And so I'll say it again. As long as harvest exists, we will worship Jesus. If, there, if ever a day comes that that ceases to be the case, I pray that God would shut it down immediately. Like, burn it to the ground if he has to. Because if we're not doing this, we're not doing anything. If we're not worshiping and witnessing for God, then we're not the church that he built us to be. So as we continue forward, we're not setting our eyes on a building. We're not setting our eyes on a budget or on bigger numbers of people. We're setting our eyes, we're staying focused, and we're worshiping Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. 
and we are witnessing for his great name. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's sing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, again, we're humbled to be here this morning. God, we're so thankful that we get to do this, that we have the honor of worshiping you. Lord, that you've set your mercy upon us. Lord, that you have called us to yourself. You have made us your people. And so right now, God, we just want to respond again in worship of your great name. Lord, make us a church that is always about the worship of Christ and the witness of the gospel and seeing more and more people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, set that mission on fire in our hearts that we would always worship you, that you would build us as a great house for yourself. Lord, build us living stones for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.